brethren, I'm going to, I'm going to ask if you will, those of you who have your Bibles in the assembly, to take the opportunity to turn with me to the book of Hebrews and the 12th chapter, and let's take a look at the first 11 verses. May I ask if all of you can hear me all right? Can you in the back and go Now, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and I think most of us agree that the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers, he has enumerated many characters of Bible history indicating that these men are outstanding examples of men of faith. And each one of them had gone through a process of suffering and affliction for the development of character. And Paul further reasons in his writings in this book of Hebrews, in this 12th chapter, Wherefore, seeing we, with so, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. Ye have not resisted unto blood striving against sin, and in the diaglot, if you'll notice in this fifth verse here, in the diaglot it is a question, and I believe it's more in keeping with the spirit of what Paul is striving to get across to these believers. Have ye forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children? My sons, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us with their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, brother, I'm going to step over here because I think this will read. We had a reason for putting this on the board. Let me help to get your attention. Our subject 
his son at the proper time, and it wasn't a hundred years before, nor was it a hundred years afterwards, but Christ was sent at the fullness of time in God's foreknowledge when he knew that the nation of Israel and the world would be able to comprehend his mission and understand the purpose for which he was sent. The family of God has slowly, but in progressive stages, has had revealed, not always learned, why God permits human suffering. Now, brethren, I know that many times the question has been posed to you. People ask, why is it that God causes wars? Others who think a little more clearly ask why God permits wars. So even men of the world do question why in the universe that there is, side by side, the laws of good and evil. Now again, I'm going to ask those of you who have your Bibles to turn with me to the book of Job. It was my privilege a year and a half ago to give a study to this book, and I say simply to you, that it has meant a great deal to me. And this book of Job has far more significance than I had ever anticipated. And I say to you quite frankly also that it wasn't my ability to dig into this and get out the wonderful truths that are found there. And I think you would be interested in what happened in England in 1937 and 38 and part of 39 there was a Christadelphian Bible class that decided that they would take the book of Job for a study. And the reason they did, brethren, is because the book of Job is a rather difficult book to understand. And they felt that it would be a very excellent thing for them to take it up as a Bible class study. And these brethren in England spent two and a half years on the book. And as a result, there was a brother there who God had given the ability to write and express himself very clearly. And he took the notes that had been taken from that Bible class, and as a result, he wrote a book on the subject based on the discussions of this Bible class, and he called it simply Job. And it is really a marvelous study, and it has meant a great deal to me, and to the best of my ability, I will attempt to give you some of the wonderful truths which to me have been very strengthening. Now in the book of Job we have portrayed here, and by the way this goes back 3,500 years, about 1,500 years before the period of Christ, and if there was ever a book in the scriptures which would be a good one to discuss the principles here that we have under consideration, you would admit that Job is an excellent example. So in the first chapter, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep, and three thousand camels, and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses in a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, brethren, when you look at these first four verses, you find here a man in the family of God, but he's an unusual man and that he's very wealthy, and the fact of the matter is, in his country, 
which they speak of the east of uh, the land of the east, this man was recognized to be very wealthy. By the way, it might be interesting too to mention in passing that when the ancients spoke of the land of the east, they spoke of all of that land that lay east of the Jordan River. And history will bear out as you look into the history of Job and that he did come from around the land of Moab and Edom, which is just east of the Jordan. And this is where this story or this account of this man's life takes place. Now there was in the, in the minds of men in, in ancient times, and brethren, I up with me, if you will, in the same chapter here, the first chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. And let me set your mind at ease, we're not going to cover all 42 chapters of Job. Beginning at that 13th verse, now here we get a picture of this man's family life. There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them, and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, That the fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consume them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, that the Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their elder's brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are all dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. 
Now, if we did not have a further record of this man, Job, we could very safely assume that this man was rightly exercised by the trial that he had, and that he could easily say that I have seen the one of the works of God, and consequently I have been corrected, and I have had my character developed. But when we pursue it, we see that Job has lost sight of these original principles that he stated. So now I'm going to ask you to go to the second chapter, and let's pick up at the seventh verse. Now, I didn't want to get this man Satan in there, and I don't want us to get, that's another divergent point. So forget about him, except that he's a part of this story as he's revealed here. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils and the sole of his foot under his premise. And he took in him a potsherd and to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. And he said unto his wife, or that is, his wife said unto him, Dost thou still retain that integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now, brethren, we pick up the visit or the journey of his three friends. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this, of this evil that came upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz from the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nathanite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off, and they knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle, and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And so they sat down with Job. And they spent seven days and seven nights, and none of them spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now how do we get across to our minds the tremendous tragic events that happened to this man? Have you ever been in a home after a funeral and you've been at a loss or at least ill at ease for words? We simply suggest that when the three friends of Job got there and they recognized a tremendous sorrow upon this man's mind, they simply could not speak unto him. Whereas the original visit was to bring him comfort, because they saw that his grief was very great. Now, how does Job see the problem, this which has befallen him, a man who has had all of his wealth taken away from him, and his family has been slain except for his wife? Look at that now, the third chapter, and let's pick up at the first verse. Now, I remind you that what Job said to his wife. And what he said, that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But now this thing is getting through to his senses. And Job is beginning to feel it. And Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And this is what Job said. Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness, and let not God regard it from above and neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it, and let a cloud dwell upon it, and let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it, 
Let it not be joined unto the days of the years, and let it not come unto the number of months. Lo, let that night, the night that he was born, let it be solitary, and no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it, curse it that day, who are ready to raise up in their morning. And let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark, and let it look for light but have none, and neither let it see the dawning of the day, because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Now, brethren, here is an individual, and God in his great wisdom has caused to be written a very personal record of a man's sorrow. And you can't think of any case that would give you more here are seven sons and three daughters that have been lost on all of his wealth. Now, this is how Job sees the problem. This man now sees it and wishes that if it were possible that he had never been brought to birth. Now look at, uh, with me at the, uh, well, first of all, let's see. Uh, look at me now uh, with... Uh, with the fourth chapter and the first through the seventh verses. And here is when Eliphaz, which was the oldest of Job's friends, begins to speak to Job. And again, this is how Eliphaz sees the problem that he witnesses in this man. Now, I want you to keep in mind again that Eliphaz also has his mind clouded with this principle number one. In Eliphaz's mind, and he's very sincere in it, in his own mind, he has already conceived and said that although I do not understand the reason for Job's suffering, or that is what his sin is, I do know that Job has sinned and God has brought this upon him because of sin. And so this is what he says to his friends, the fourth chapter beginning at the first verse. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, will you be grieved? He asked him, Would you be grieved now if we speak? We've been sitting here, and now we would like to see. But notice the character of the man, but who can withhold himself from speaking? Now, brethren, I simply point out to you that this man, with all the sincere intent to comfort Job, this man begins to suggest to Job that you've got a sin that needs to be confessed of. And I am trying to help you to see what that sin is and confess it, and then these things will be lifted from you. Can you imagine a man trying to comfort a man who's lost seven sons and three daughters and all his wealth, and a man says unto him, Eliphaz, You have instructed many, and you have strengthened the hands of the weak. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest, and it touches thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Now, brethren, you can see from what Eliphaz says to his friend Job that he's thinking in terms of principle number one. That Job has an enormous sin that hasn't been revealed, but this man must confess it before God will bless him. And he even goes to the extent of saying that your seven sons and your three daughters have perished because they were not innocent. 
Look what he says. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perish being innocent. Now, let's take a look at Job's answer to his friend Eliphaz. So we go to the sixth chapter and the first verse. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balance thereof. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirits, and the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Now if we to pursue more of the record what is said here, we'll find that Job simply does not understand the purpose for which this came upon him. And he actually is beginning to question the wisdom of God. He does not understand it, he's troubled by it, and consequently he has not been able to reason from principle number one to principle number two. Again, let's call attention to In the 8th chapter, we find that his second friend speaks by the name of Bildad. Then answered Bildad, Bildad the Shuite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Bildad is suggesting to Job that he's poured out a multitude of words and that he has not found the answer. And then he asked Job, he says, Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him, and he has cast them away for their transgressions, and if thou wouldest seek unto God betimes, make thy supplications to the Almighty. And if thou were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Our brethren, again, principle number one is clouding this man's mind, and he still insists that Job has an enormous sin that has not yet been revealed. Now look at the 20th uh, verse of that same chapter. Bildad further reasons and says, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoer. Now turn to the 11th chapter. And we pick up the comments of his friend Zophar. Zophar answered. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou walkest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. That is, Job, he said that Job said that his doctrine was pure, and it was clean in the eyes of God. And Zophar says, But oh, that God would speak, and open his lips against thee. And he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, and they are doubled of that which is. Know therefore, Job, that God exacteth thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. 
Now, brethren, when I read this, I think in terms of what has happened to the man. He's lost his children, and can you imagine a friend? These are of the family of God coming to him and say to the individual in this state of mind, God really is exacting less of thee than thou deservest. Well, Job has listened to the reasoning of his friends. His mind is befret. We don't know how long they spent in this conversation. But Job has had enough. And look what he says to his three friends in the 12th chapter. And Job answered and said, No doubt, but you are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. This is sarcasm to him. And he says, I have understanding as well as you. And I am not inferior to you who knoweth such things as these. And I am, uh, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. And the just upright man is laughed to scorn. And really Job is saying to his three men, his three friends, that I too have wisdom, and you have not given me a scriptural, an intelligent, and reasonable answer why this has befallen me. So Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all have their minds clouded still by principle one. His three friends believe he sins. Job believes he has not sinned, and since he does not believe that he's guilty of sins, and if it's true what Zophar says, that Job said he was clean in the eyes of God, then it's understandable why he does not understand their reasoning from principle one, because Job does not believe he sinned. Consequently, why did trials and suffering come upon me? Let's jump way over to the 32nd chapter. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now verses number 2 and 3. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no God. And when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Now, the fourth verse. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the draught of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, and surely in the floods of great waters, excuse me, brethren, it just occurred to me, It just occurred to me that I was reading from, from Psalms when I turned over. So I beg of you to turn back with me to that, 30, uh, that 32nd chapter. I hope that your thoughts didn't digress too much. We apologize to you. It does happen to brethren. Job 32.1 So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Now we have introduced another friend here, or a character, 
and his name is Elihu, and he's the son of Rechal, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. And against Job was this man's wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. And also Elihu's wrath was kindled against his three friends, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he, indicating, brethren, that this was a young man, that is, comparatively speaking. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled, and Elihu, the son of Barakil, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and you are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, or I reasoned, that days should speak, and the multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And great men are not always wise, neither do the aged always understand judgment. Now, if you will turn to the 14th and 15th of that same chapter, which 33, I want to give you an interesting point of this young man, Elihu. You know, in the days of the ancients, it was customary once in a while for a man actually to receive a vision or a dream from God. And this was for the development of their character and for a better understanding of God as they led them. Now we're speaking of the community of God. And this young man claims, now whether this claim can be sustained is another thing. But this young man claims that he had one of these dreams in a vision of the night when deep sleep fall upon men. And then he opened the ears of men and he sealeth their instruction. So Elihu says to Job that I have been fortunate and I have been one of these select individuals who has received one of these visions from the Almighty God. And consequently what I have to say to you is altogether reliable and maybe I can help you to understand why you are in this condition. Now keeping in mind, let's see now, from 33, 8 and 9, I want you to pick up those verses with me. Elihu said that Job said unto him, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, and neither is there iniquity in me. I want you to turn over with me a very interesting comment on that in the New, uh, New Testament, which is from the first, from jo first book of John, the first chapter, 8th and 10th verses. <coughs> Truly Job did say that he was clean in the eyes of God and that he was free from transgression and from iniquity. And yet if Job had had a better understanding of human nature, he would have never made this claim. So in reading from 1 John, we pick up an interesting comment here in the first chapter, the 8th and 10th verses. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, brethren, turn on over with me to the 38th chapter of Job. I'm going to make sure this time that I don't get back in the, in the book of Psalms. 
Job 38, the first four verses. Now naturally we are interested in what God says unto his son. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now the loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. I ask you, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you've got understanding, you tell me where you were when I laid the foundation of the earth, if thou hast this understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, and if thou knowest, or hast stretched out the line upon it. And so God says unto Job, If you have this knowledge and understanding that you claim to have, I pose a simple question. Brethren, we understand that this is an angel speaking, but he speaks on behalf of God. And so he calls attention to Job. Well, consider creation. Where were you, Job, when I created these things? Because remember, if we understand this book of Job, and God certainly has some reason for including it in his holy writ, it is to tell us that men are capable of calling God in question. And so the Lord, in answering Job, simply begins to reason him with him from the premise, where were you at creation? Now skip down to the 22nd and the 23rd verse, reading from the 38th chapter. He asked him, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, and against the day of battle and of war? Now turn with me to the 40th chapter, 1 and 2. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? And he that reproveth God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Now notice the change of Job. You'll notice here, brethren, I've only read a few verses. If you're interested in the book of Job, you can read the account for yourself. But here is what the result end is of Job when he has all of this reasoning and as God reveals himself unto him. Job says in effect, Behold, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? And wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Now, brethren, we know from the reading of the book of Job that he did learn from this trial and suffering. But the point that we must get from it is, is that man simply does not have the mental capacity to question and to understand the ways of God. And consequently, brethren, there are times when we must and we do have to accept by faith those things that come upon us and trouble us and sometimes brethren cry out and say, I simply do not understand why these things have come upon me. And this was the position of Job. And brethren, this is our position. There are many times when we do not understand the ways of God. We do not have the mental capacity to understand his ways. In fact, Isaiah says of him, that is speaking on behalf of God, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. 
For my thoughts and my ways are as high above the earth as... Uh, well, brethren, how, how does the 55th go with? 55, Sir Jer- I mean Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Therefore, in looking at this 40th chapter, we see that Job has learned or come into recognition principle number two, that God does bring trial and suffering as a means of the development of character and that is an expression of his love and mercy for his people. And so I ask you to turn with me now to the last chapter of Job, which is the 42nd here. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore Job says that I have uttered that I understood not, and things too wonderful me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Job says of God, I have heard of thee by the ear, or the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and the Zophar the Nathamite, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. And the Lord also accepted Job. And brethren, these are the very comforting things. And interestingly enough, there's about seven or eight verses left in this chapter. But we have the full end of the life of Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And there came there unto him all of his brethren and all his sisters, and all those, all they that had been of his acquaintance before. And they did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemimah and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Kirhapos. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brethren. And after this lived Job in hundred and forty years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. 
And so Job died being old and full of days. These brethren who took this study of Job for two and a half years, in their consideration of it, and this is brought out in their study, and I thought it was a very excellent point, the Master had access to the oracles of God, and the book of Job was a part of those oracles. And after giving consideration to what this Bible class had said in their notes, it is quite clear that the Master himself drew great comfort from a knowledge and having access to the book of Job that we read here tonight. And as a result, even the Master got a more comprehensive picture of these two principles. And brethren, both of these principles are correct. It is the fact that trials and suffering do come upon the human family and upon God's family as a result of sin or transgression. But there is another facet of God's character. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. There is a side of God's character that man must understand in that man and God's relationship. That God is interested in the salvation of his sons and daughters. And consequently, he does that. Bring upon his sons and daughters trial and affliction, always with his in mind that it is an expression of his tender love and his mercy, and the result is is the correction of the development of our characters. I had another chart that I was going to put on the board, but we're not going to attempt to do it. Would you like to hear some of the few notes that these brethren came up with? In the fullness of time, when man was ready to apprehend the message of God and to reveal the end and purpose of suffering, in which Jesus was willing to pay the supreme penalty that we might come to God thereby, God, who was prepared to give his son, and to that end certainly did not hesitate to express it in words because he wished to hide himself. Rather, we must recognize in that retirement of God, which did at not once mention the place of suffering in human experience, because of the inability of man to comprehend at that early day. It is doubly significant that the only method of establishing man in the face of his many limitations is that of faith. When a man cannot understand the solutions of his problems which he meets in life, it would be no solution for God to frame that answer in words which would be incomprehensible to him. So the only possible way, brethren, that we can learn is that which God adopts in this book of Job, which we have consulted here. He manifests as plainly as man is able to see exactly what he is and what the Creator is like. His might and his wisdom shall be man's assurance that the God of all creation is both strong, and enough, strong enough and wise enough to accomplish whatever he wills. 
On the other hand, the clear pattern of his present and past dealings with his creatures, his kindness and his interest in the least of his living forms, shall be man's assurance that he is interested in man. And as the natural appetite of the lion is created in order that God may bring pleasure to the lion by satisfying him with flesh, so man may rest assured that his own higher spiritual aspirations will also bring their due blessings. But all this must, but all this must rest on human faith in God, not because God will not speak, but because, brethren, we cannot many times comprehend. There is a language of God that he could speak, but we cannot comprehend it. Consequently, there are many instances when we do walk by faith. Man may rest assured that his own higher spiritual aspirations will also bring their due blessings. Only slowly and by suffering can we advance in our heavenly education. And all that God can do is progressively to reveal himself to us, strengthening our gaze, and thus refresh and fortify our faith in him. One other small paragraph, brethren. of the human participants had been brought face to face with the great problem of suffering. And all of them had failed in bitter perplexity to plumb the depths and find a solution. The divine answer is an assurance that however hard we try, we cannot, in our present infirmity, comprehend a fundamental and so a fundamental so involved as this. Even the simpler and more elementary matters are beyond our full understanding. But God is as merciful as he is wise. And we are not left in despair at our weakness. Our attention is diverted to the complete witness of the universe, to the witness and the kindness of the Creator. And our wisdom lies not Brethren, we desire to emphasize our wisdom lies not in concentrating our attention on the misery and the suffering that we are experiencing and which many times we are unable to comprehend, but rather in doing the equally mysterious good and learning with humility to the substitute of faith instead of criticism. And I would like to read from the book of Psalms, the 103rd and the 13th and the 14th verses. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frames, and he remembereth that we are dust. 